Welcome to Paint Ed. PCA provides painting contractors with connections they need to grow their business. To find out more and to become a member, visit PCAPainted.org. Find more great content like this on PCA Overdrive. A subscription to the platform is included with membership. For all of you non-members out there, sign up for a free trial. PCA Overdrive is available on the App Store and Google Play. This is the Ask a Painter live show. I am your host, Nick Slavic. This is a weekly live Facebook show where I use my over three decades of experience as a master craftsperson and business owner to answer any of your questions live and just share what the life of a, a master craftsperson and entrepreneur is. And today is kind of a very special episode for a couple of reasons. Uh, we are in the Slavic shop today. Uh, up in my upper office where we all collaborate. Um, we are going to recap the entire Mastering the Basics series of professionalization. And then we're also going to talk about the United Arab Emirates. I just got back this last week from an amazing trip. I'll share you some images and things like that. And then, uh, yeah, we will get rocking and rolling. Do, 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 sharing my tab. Okay, folks, so here's, here's what we have done uh, so far. Since the start of the year, I do a recap called Mastering the Basics, where we basically go through all the steps to professionalization. And uh, we start at step one, we go to step seven or eight, and I actually go into a deep dive and show you guys exactly how I professionalize my business, how others have done theirs. And then I share all my resources from those things. So this is a show where we bring it all together. So we've been talking for almost three months now about this entire process, and sometimes we have been zoomed in. So far, it's good to zoom back out and see what's going on. So, uh, okay, let me let me just make sure everything is in order. We might be dual broadcasting here. I'm seeing two windows pop up. Uh, let me make sure we're not duplicating the video feed, and then we're going to get rocking and rolling. So. Thanks for your patience, everybody. Broadcasting from a new spot today. So just making sure everything is working for you guys. <laughs> okay, I think we should be good to go. Okay, here we go, folks. Okay, so uh, any question, any topic, you guys know, always, always, always just post them there. Uh, Noah Tucker, the first one to ask, where's the glorious stash? The mustache is the least convenient form of facial hair that I have ever used in my life or grown in my life. Uh, for the last eight months, I have not taken a sip of a liquid or eaten a bite of a solid where I didn't have to wipe my face right after because it's basically a whisker dam that gets in the way of anything you want to put in your mouth as far as food and drink goes. And it's wildly inconvenient. So I was going for the big Wyatt Earp mustache. I got pretty close, but I don't think I'm willing to see it another six months uh, through. Also, uh, my wife, Toots, very understanding. Shout out, Toots, love you. Um, so yeah, I just thought I would get a clean slate and get back and get back after it. The old cookie duster. I love it, man. Okay. So like I said, we are going to recap the steps of professionalization and then we are going to, uh, we are going to get into my trip to United Arab Emirates and it's going to be a blast. So let me screen share and let's slide show it up. There we go. So now three months three months we have been going through the Mastering the Basics series. I have personally, I'm seeing a lot of familiar faces on here. 
I have absolutely been sending all of my resources. You guys have been responding. You've been asking clarifying questions. It has been absolutely glorious. Thank you guys for this. Every once in a while during the year, I will bump in and do a mastering the basics thing, but I miss demonstrations. I miss interviews. I miss going out and about and job sites and things like this and broadcasting. But I do understand that quarter one of every year is where people devote a lot of time to their business. And this is the best time to do this stuff. So thank you guys. Also, I'm going to be sharing an awesome resource at the end of this for you guys and making a big ask as well, too. So Mastering the Basics, show number 355. Uh, this is a weekly live show. There's been 355 weeks of uninterrupted broadcasts here. This is the recap of the entire professionalization series. So if you want to know what to charge for X, if you want to know how to schedule, if you want to know how to find people, if you want to know uh, anything, how to run a business, if you feel that you have a whole bunch of friction in your business and things aren't running well, professionalization, which is kind of a boring term, is the solution to all that stuff, though. I want you guys to know that. Professionalization is a series of boring, mundane, unsexy sort of things that you do consistently for a long time in order to make your business run well. Now, for people like me, uh, they're not boring and mundane. I actually get a lot of energy out of this, but I also understand that some people do not. So I want to be respectful of that. But also, if you find yourself as a business owner, especially in the trades, congratulations, suck it up. These are things you have to do to run a real business and, uh, and to be able to last a little longer than a few years. Now, why is professionalization important? Right here, um, for you on TikTok, for you guys on Instagram, you are going to miss this glorious screen share I'm doing on Facebook here. So one thing you're going to have to do is go to the live feed afterwards to see all the slides and the mini master's class that I'm sharing with you guys. What you're seeing here is 1.5. This is the magic number. The average painting business in the United States is 1.5 people. How do you get 0.5 people? Well, you do exactly what my father did. My father's a paint business owner and he gets his son to help him in the summer. That is a 1.5 person business. 99% of all painting businesses in the United States are 1.5 people. So this is not a value judgment. This is not me saying that's good or bad, but this is me saying there's a very high percentage that these are unprofessionalized. They don't know what to charge. They can't deliver a proven product and their service isn't that good just by odds. $43,000 a year. The average paint business owner takes home $43,000 a year, which is basically $21.5 an hour, which is sad because we're taking on a lot of risk. We're doing an amazing job for our clients. We're taking on a lot of uh, risk in doing this and um, we're providing an amazing service and we're not being compensated well, but it's not our client's fault. It's our fault. We set the rates for what we do. And uh, what makes that important is this, which is half of all Americans make $50,000 or less or more. And uh, the average paint business owner makes less than the average American. So if I were, if not me, if you were to get advice about whether you should be a paint business owner, I would say, well, if you play all the odds, you would actually be better off working for anybody else than being a paint business owner. But that is changing, right? An exciting time to be in the trades. And I'm going to show you a couple of things later on. This is very important too. One to three years, the average age of a paint business in the United States. So from startup to disappearance, shutdown, bankruptcy, one to three years. Why? Because it's a 1.5 person business that makes $43,000 a year. I would not be taking on this risk either if there wasn't something more than $43,000. No business owner would at all. So why professionalize? All right. Here's the, here's the thing, folks. Nobody takes into account their own labor or the risk in doing this. So think about um, the risk in, in an organization, right? Getting a job at a gas station 
has less risk than starting up a business, any business, not just a paint business. So when you think about four different forms of organizations, you have an owner-driven, you have a people-driven, you have a process-driven, and then a culture-driven organization. Owner-driven is basically the single sole person, me. If I'm operating this business, everything is dependent on me. That's a very high risk. And then the risk curve goes like this. So when you go from owner to people-driven, the risk curve comes down a little bit. There's other people in your business that drive it, and it's less risky because it it, uh, dilutes your risk and puts it with you and other people. When you go to process-driven, the risk curve come down again because now all of a sudden you have systems, standard operating procedures that helps take that risk and spread it around. And then you have a culture-driven company like that where the actual culture, the ethos, uh, the morals, and the core values of a company will drive the business and make it less risky because you can put a lot of humans in there and the culture of the business is so strong, it won't allow a bad operator to get in there. But you have to account for your risk, right? So why professionalize? Again, every business goes through a life cycle. And this can be a day, this can be 10,000 years, anywhere in between. You typically have an introduction stage, low sales, high costs, low profits. You growth, you go up the ramp, you increase sales, reduce costs and some profits. You have a maturity stage where you have consistent sales, reduce costs, increase profits. And then eventually every business declines, but you don't have to decline. There's actually a little loop you can take, a life cycle extension where you can innovate. Um, you can try something new. Uh, you can grab new people. You can innovate your culture. Somehow stay with the times, modernize, professionalize, and you can get a life cycle extension that will extend that infinitely. And and the best businesses on earth do this constantly, and they don't necessarily know when it's going to be, but they're always looking for the next innovation. So, Shane, how's it going, man? Good, how are you? Live broadcasting. How was today? Good. Good, man. You need anything from me? No, I'm all good. Have a good night. All right, man. You too. All right. So life cycle extension will let you go back to either growth or maturity stages and cycle through that infinitely if you do it really well. So here's here's kind of the um, the pyramid of the U.S. economy and how you can interact interact with it, give or take. So um, you have an employees, you trade your time for money. You have a self-employed owner operator where you own a job. Your active work creates income. Then you have a business owner. It's a scalable system and income doesn't depend on your active work. And then you have an investor. You have a stabilized asset and equity in something makes money for you. Now, there's those two ones in the middle, business owner and self-employed owner operator. This is not a judgment call, right? This is not me saying good or bad, uh, good or evil, anything else. But this is me saying we have to recognize where we are on this because that will give us the steps forward in order to grow. And we also don't want to be blindsided by certain things. If you are the average paint business in the United States, you are 1.5 people, you own a job. Yes, technically, you filed with the state of Minnesota, you're an LLC, or you filed a business uh, entity with the state of Minnesota. So technically, you own a business, but it is not a business outside of yourself. You own a job where if you stop working, you stop creating income. There is a huge chasm between owning a job and owning a business. With a business, you start going down on that risk curve of having people and operating systems and culture that drives the business instead of you alone. So again, not good or bad, but you have to understand where you are on this. If you're a self-employed owner operator and you own a job, you will never have an asset to sell at the end of this. So if you think you're going to have $2 million worth of business to sell at the end of this and you're a single owner operator, you're not going to be there. It's just not going to happen. You're not buying anything because anybody who is going to buy a business wouldn't want to buy your business because you are driving it. And when you leave, there's nothing to drive, basically. 
So just that's not good or bad. If you don't intend to sell this at the end of it and you know the risk profile, then it's perfectly fine. But don't delude yourself into thinking that this is super low risk and I'm going to have a huge asset to sell at the end of this stuff. So, all right, some steps. Let, let me take a look at some. Uh, um, do, 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 do. Make sure I'm not breezing by any comments here. We're on TikTok, we're on Instagram, and we're on Facebook. All right, here we go, folks. All right, let's go through the steps. So I'm going to quickly recap all the steps to professionalization. At the end of this, I'll give you my email address. And for those of you who don't have this already, I have my two-page sheet with all the Ask a Painter links that basically brings you through every step to professionalization, links to multiple shows. I have updated this even as last week with new resources in there for you guys. So basically, if you're a single owner operator right now and you want to have a big organization with a leadership team and a finishing facility, a fleet of vehicles, a business that runs without you, this is what you want to do to do this. Now, I will also say there is something to professionalizing, even if you're a single owner operator and you don't intend to grow or scale. All the things that we talk about, minus developing your team, the last step, are things you can do as a single owner operator to reduce your stress, have less friction, make more money, and deliver a better uh, process and system and product to your clients. So this is not just for big businesses that want to do a bunch of this stuff. So let's talk about the actual steps. We're going to go by them very quickly. Many of you guys have seen these. I have devoted an entire show to each one of these things. And the sheet that I gave you, the steps to professionalization, is basically a, a deep dive into each one of these things with hyperlinks. Number one, proven process. You have a reliable, repeatable product to the client via documented standard operating procedures. If it's not written down, it does not exist. Proven estimating process. So now all of a sudden you got to have some database version of giving clients a price so that you can predictably make a profit so you can predictably stay in business and then possibly hire employees. It's a reliable, repeatable sales process, sales and estimating process to track your sales number and success ratios. So number one, you wanna have a database way uh, to estimate project price, not just sniff test, finger in the air, right? But then we also have to track those sales to see if we're, if we're charging the right price or not. And this is basically the proven estimating process, the sales tracker here every week, including this morning with my beloved estimating team, we went through all the numbers uh, in the company and we decided we were on track or off track. They also blew it out of the water this last week, which is awesome. So um, proven estimating process with the marketing. I did an entire show on this where I track my marketing and we try to figure out how many leads we need, how we're gonna get those leads. We do ex marketing experiments to try to uh, see what produces those leads. And then we go forth and we market so that we can grow a business because you should be very proud of yourself if you have grown a $500,000 or a million dollar business with word of mouth, repeat and referral. The problem is you cannot scale a business on word of mouth, repeat and referral because you do not control it. They are the best leads. I will never take them for granted. It's a large portion of what we do. The problem is we can't control it like standard marketing does. So. All right, here we go. Ah, Benoiche, my friends from Brazil watching on TikTok today. Deliverables and standards. This is a big show. This is a big show. Employees should know what a win looks like as well as what's expected of them. So we're talking about standards. We're talking about core values. We're talking about a rating system, goal setting and review, things like that. Job descriptions. This is a big one, folks. Again, if it's not written down, it doesn't exist. If you hire somebody and they are, there's not a job description, onboarding, training, a rating system and they say, hey, I'm not getting on a ladder over eight feet in the air. And you can say, well, you're a house painter. You have to get on a ladder over eight feet in the air. Uh, that employee has all the right to say, just show me where it's written down that I have to get on a ladder over eight feet. 
right? And if it's not written down, then it's basically your feelings against theirs. And that's not a great way to lead a company. So a job description that accurately tells people what they're going to get into and what they do. Uh, let's see, deliverables and standards, pay scale. So now all of a sudden you have to show people. And for me, a pay scale isn't this punitive thing where it's like, I'm only going to pay you this if you do this. What you have to think about a pay scale, a competency database pay scale is one of the most inspirational things you can do for your people. It's you looking into the future saying, here's the standards of the company. If you do this, we're going to give you this. This is going to be your reward at the end of it. It's something you can hold the employees accountable to, but it's also something the employees can hold you accountable to, which is just as important. And Alicia, I see you have a comment here. I'll get to that in just a second. Goal setting and review, GSR, goal setting and review. We sit down quarterly with every single person in my company and we rate their performance. It's all data-based. It is not my feelings. The worst thing you can do is have a feelings-based compensation plan in your company where the employee, I just interviewed somebody a couple of weeks ago. They left a company that they worked for for over a decade. They never had an employee review unless they asked their employer and there was no data in that employee review. And I thought, how in the hell do you stay in this company for more than a decade? It's just wild that somebody would do that. We rate our people four times a year and it's all database. We rate them on three main things. We rate them on attendance. We rate them on job performance and some updates they have to do. And it is their performance. It's not my feelings. It, I am the deliverer of the news and my leadership team is the deliverer of the news, but it's not my feelings. It is their performance. It's very important uh, to do that. Do you have a recommendation software for this or would you suggest you have uh, shown... Or would you just suggest as you have shown and use spreadsheets? So I don't know a software that'll do all this stuff for you. For me, it's easier to go on G Sheets and just create all this stuff because you can make it how you want it um, instead of trying to figure out a software and then get it to uh, do what you want, I guess. So that's just my way of thinking about it too. Uh, work orders. So again, something else you want to give your employees so that they know it's a recipe card for a job. What are we painting? What colors? What finishes? Uh, what paints? And in what process? Things like that. Employee handbook. Oh my Lord. You guys have heard me say it. I rallied against employee handbooks for a long time because I thought it was super corporate-y and it was punitive towards your employees. But what you understand is that this is a safety blanket for everybody involved. This is, I've, I've taken a look at all these things and I felt like everything corporate was punitive, right? Like to safeguard the employer at the sake of the employee. And that is not the case done well. There are a whole bunch of really bad employers out there. And I do realize that, um, when things didn't make sense, I was looking at corporate policies and the way they treated employees and handbooks. And I thought, God, this is kind of gross, actually. It doesn't feel like you actually like any of your employees or are setting them up for a win anytime. Then you start realizing that there's some really good employers out there. And then you see their employee handbooks and their pay and compensation scale, uh, scales. And you realize like, oh, my God, there's a completely different way of doing all this stuff where it is a, a joint document of trust between a person who writes the paycheck and a person who accepts a paycheck and works very hard to earn one. Now, I used to see this employee handbook as this gross, punitive, weird thing. Now, it is this beautiful document that lays down the law for my employees to hold me accountable and me to hold them accountable. And it's this mutual trust because it's not my feelings. It's not just in my head. It's actually written down and it's a mutually agreed upon treaty so that we can go on a trust relationship. It's a beautiful thing. So now I think my employee handbook is like, I treat it as a work of art where I constantly craft it. Four times a year, we're updating it, things like that. And I'm trying to make it as 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 um, 
uh, as helpful as I can to the people around me so that they know what to expect. So accountability. Uh, when businesses fail, they fail because of accountability. So my way of accountability is my Monday morning meetings, just like I did with my leadership team today. We go through all the basic measures, all the basic KPIs of the business. Every single person owns a different one of them. And we basically say on track, off track. If it's off track, it's a point of discussion. We do something called IDS, identify, discuss, and solve. And we see if we can't make progress on them. Job costing. Boy, this is one of my favorite shows of the year. And it sounds like it's the most boring thing on the planet, but job costing will literally change your life. Um, it takes almost all the feelings out of running a paint business and overlays data with it. And then there's really nowhere for you to hide. Um, and the problem with that is there is nowhere to hide then because lots of paint business owners have come to Jesus moments when they start job costing. Job costing is accounting for materials and labor per job. It doesn't take into account overhead. It's basically saying on this job, how did you do? Your profit and loss statement takes into account the overhead. Lots of people have never accounted for their own labor and have never actually had more than a feelings-based idea about how they're doing. Typically people say, I'm the most expensive, um, I am the best painter around, uh, and I'm booked out two years in advance. I'm killing it. I don't know what you possibly want me to do. Turns out a lot of these people, not a, val not a judgment thing. I was one of those people at one time, but they've never job costed. They've never actually accounted for material labor and compared it to a benchmark to see how they're doing. Magically, you see a lot of dropped faces when you do this because you, you realize that, yes, I made a happy client and yes, I'm not bankrupt, but I'm not actually making any money. And that's why paint businesses make $43,000 a year and go out of business one to three years. That's not a very good thing. So job costing is the key. Goal tracking. I get job costing, which is at the singular job level, and you put it out to the week, the month, the quarter, and the year, give or take. Now, again, we're still not taking into account overhead here. There's two kinds of expenses in a business. There's variable expense and fixed expense. Variable expense is the things you need to input into the economy in order to derive income from it. And the overhead, the fixed expense, are all the things that are going to, you don't incur those costs when you get a job. You incur those costs whether you get a job or not. So like this shop that I'm standing in, I will be making a mortgage payment on this shop whether we have work or not. That's why overhead is kind of this scary thing, which is you're going to pay for this no matter what. A variable cost, labor and material, you only incur those costs um, when you actually get a job. And that is job costing. Job costing is just to assess that sort of thing. Hey, my friends at Surf Prep are watching here. So uh, you guys will love this. If, you, if you've never interacted with a Surf Prep team, uh, this afternoon I walked into the office and I found that one of my people uh, had broke apart on a Surf Prep sander. So I got on the chat function on my phone on their website. And I was like, hey, let's just uh, chat the people here. Turns out that one of the daughters of the owners is uh, manning the chat. And I basically said, hey, how you doing? Good to see you again. I actually just saw you in North Carolina not that long ago. Um, we have a broken part. And they're like, is it this? Is it this? Is it this? And I say, yes. And they say, it's in the mail today. If you have never experienced that before, that is a wild thing where you can talk to experts instantly. So I will say, uh, please uh, look into the surf prep people. They are professionals like we're talking about today. Uh, big fans of them. Okay, team development. One of the last stages here is team development. So whether you're developing a painter or a leadership team or a C-suite or investors or anything else, it's very important that you're intentional about recruiting people. Now, this is basically a treatise. I've been spending a decade of my life developing this, working on it, thinking about it. The one thing I will tell you about developing a team is this. We need to change our mindset about developing a team. We endlessly think about marketing for clients. 
for jobs. We're trying to get innovative. We're getting stickers. We're getting magnets. We're getting yard signs and T-shirts and vehicle wraps. And we're doing every door direct mail. And, uh, you know, we're hiring postcard companies. And we're getting into uh, Google AdWords and things like this and, and, and Facebook marketing. And we're endlessly fascinated by this. But yet when it comes time to recruit people in t- to within our company, our employees, instead of recruiting potential people that we can paint their house, clients, we are not interested in spending any time or any money, which is wild. It should be this beautiful balance sort of thing like this. And we completely are disgusted with spending any time and money, um, research and development, R&D, a budget, right, on finding people to work within our company. And we will endlessly, we actually go to marketing conferences to figure out how to find clients. So we need to start a mind shift in the industry here. So (laughs) we need to start a mind shift in the industry that says, you know what? It may be even more important to recruit, train, develop, onboard, and retain the people who come into our business even more so than our employees, you know, or excuse me, than than our potential clients, or at least do it equally. Uh, the onboarding process too. A large amount of employees uh, will actually consider leaving a job if they're not onboarded or onboarded properly. That's a big thing. And most painting companies don't have an onboarding thing. You show up your first day, you you get paired with some grumpy old guy, the grumpy old guy screams at you, and then uh, soon soon you find another job. Um, The training process too. Again, what do you do with your people to train them? Do you just shove them on a job site, tell them to talk to old Chuck and old Chuck will train you? Or do you actually have this intentional process of teaching them not only the tasks, but your culture, your core values, uh, your ethos, how you take care of clients, your processes, your apps, things like that. It's very important. Then, of course, there's the whole apprenticeship thing. I've broken this down for you guys, too. First principles reasoning, which is, oh, my God, this is I got to spend time recruiting people. Then we're going to have them. We're going to pay to train them. This It's so expensive. Basically, when you break this down, when you apply some data, not just feelings, you slowly realize that. If you have one trainer and two apprentices, it's probably going to cost you about $2,440 to train one apprentice for two weeks, give or take. And typically a recruiter, if you if you allot you know, $30 an hour to your own time to do a, a menial task like that of, of putting job ads out there and skimming through them and doing phone interviews, uh, typically you're going to spend 50 hours at 30 bucks an hour, 1500 bucks. So when you, when you actually apply some data and some logic to it, it's not the end of the world, folks. It's a great investment. We will spend 3500 bucks on a sprayer with wheels on it like nothing and we'll actually pose with it and take pictures and be like, hey, look at my new toy. This is so awesome. But yet we're completely disgusted with spending $2,400 with fostering and developing a human that we hope to spend a lot of time with. So, again, mindset shift that we need to do. Retention. What you have to be careful with retaining employees is that you don't focus on just the sexy stuff, but you focus on real stuff. Sexy stuff would be axe throwing, go-kart racing, uh, you know, uh, pizza parties, things like that. The real stuff is daily consistent connection. You have to form a trusting relationship where they know if they have questions, if they have concerns, they can open and honestly talk to you about them. And that only comes with constant connection constant connection. So you also want to think about leaders and performance stuff. Um, Myself and my two senior leaders in the company, my senior leadership team, we actually get performance coaching. We have a coach that outside of our work hours actually gives us performance coaching, Uh, helps us develop as humans and leaders, gives us perspective, things like that. But you also want to meet people where they're at. And for people who have never had a 
entrepreneurial job like this or had a job where they have the potential to be a leader, you also want to inculcate them into leadership as well, too. You want to introduce them to accountability and owning your position, not blame, excuse, deny, but taking ownership, responsibility, leading other people, inspiring other people, and then uh, getting jobs done, not just with themselves, but with others. That's a big thing. And one thing you want to think about, too, is personal professionalization. So now we're talking about everything around us, the people, the systems, the, the company, this and that. But always remember that we are in charge of this and we're getting the result that's intended by our efforts. Right. So intentionally identifying, discussing and solving personal shortcomings. Right. Mine was accountability. I still struggle with it, too, but I have systems in place that make me hold people accountable and hold myself accountable, too. And it's a it's a wonderful system to work within now. But you have to know yourself. Scheduling, prioritizing, visioning. It's likely if you're the owner of your company and you did not hire a visionary to work with you, congratulations, you are the visionary where you like it or not. So just like Holly Barlow said, suck it up. Suck it up. You have to do this. It doesn't matter if you want to or not. If you start a business and it's only you in the business, you wear all the hats. You can say, I'm not good with computers. I don't want to do spreadsheets. I don't like doing phone calls. I don't. It doesn't matter. You chose this. If you want to do this well, you cannot have it your way. You need to be a professional when you do this stuff. So if you don't like visioning and you don't like accountability and you don't like creating culture, you don't like developing people, guess what? You can, That's fine. You can own a job, but you're still going to have to do six of the seven steps of professionalism if you want to stay in business for more than about three years, give or take. Visioning is a big thing, too. So you want to be able to look out into the future. And what we're looking at here is a, is a form of my org chart where I play around. I move pieces around and it manipulates how much we can uh, make, uh, you know, uh, uh, needs for materials, needs for labor, uh, budgeting, cash flow analysis, things like that. It's a fun thing. So as a leaders here, too, what you want to think about is a scientific process of problem solving. Um, a lot of the times we get stuck in businesses uh, in our businesses where there's a fire and we put it out and we basically just uh, stand there wincing, waiting for the next fire. Uh, the big thing we want to do is this, which is tactic versus strategy. A tactic would be there's a fire. Let's put it out with water. A strategy would be take three levels up from that problem and say, how can we create a system like the war room we're looking at where this problem never even comes up? And that's what takes good leadership. And it takes a team to do that stuff. So, again, the scientific process, there's a constant improvement cycle that we need to go through where we identify a problem. We discuss the possible outcomes and we solve it. It doesn't mean by solve it should really say, try some stuff and see what works, but then collect the data and try something again. You don't necessarily have to solve it on the first time every time. But what you want to do is identify something, discuss solutions, and then attempt to solve it, and then quickly iterate. If that doesn't work, identify the problem, discuss some more solutions, and try to solve it again. And you have to be honest here. So what we're looking at here is a um, is a uh, process or an exercise called the flywheel exercise. Uh, it's a fairly famous one. But when you actually break down the core functions of your business, uh, the flywheel exercise will actually help you identify what it is that your business is on earth functioning for. What has momentum? What will keep going? And yes, you can say we are painters, so it's painting. We do this painting stuff, right? Now, when I actually looked at my own business, we realized that we are not necessarily just a painting company. There may actually be something more important that almost everybody overlooks. So in our flywheel, we attract decent human beings, DHBs, right? We inspire those people. We have simple systems so that they can win. 
we have surprisingly fine finishes. We don't have we don't have people that have been around the industry for two, three decades, give or take. We have these beautiful systems where decent human beings operate in them in a high, high level and surprise our clients constantly with a level of finish. That level of finish makes happy clients. That happy client maximizes margins. Those maximized margins allow us to put money back to our recruiting machine, which then will attract decent human beings. You can see the flywheel going round and round. Now, one, two, three, four out of seven steps were directly related to humans and not painting. One step was related to painting out of seven in that entire thing. So yes, painting is important. I love it more than anything else. We're gonna focus on it intently. It's gonna be great. But the problem is people focus on paint and they don't focus on the people. So in my company, we're not saying don't focus on paint. We're saying we're gonna push the craft as far as we can go, but we're also gonna push leadership and development and mentorship of our people as far as we can go as well too. And when you look at this, it's hard, it's, you can't hide from it, right? We are a human development agency. We are a human development entity that happens to paint as our vehicle of creating economic income. So head trash as well too. So one thing we have to realize is that through all this stuff, yes, there's lots of spreadsheets, lots of accountability there's leadership skills and things like that but we are only limited by our ability to execute our business plans and that's basically right here in the residential painting world at this time in the economy right now there really is no competition right how early can you wake up how hard can you work how intentional can you be how consistent can you be and not extreme and how professional you can be and a lot of the times when we fail it's literally because head trash and limiting beliefs. We've decided that, well, I can't use no computers. I'm not going to any spreadsheets. So I guess I'm just not going to professionalize. That is not smart. We, we as business owners are problem solvers. We take some of the most complex things, the risky things, and we fix them and we lead and we inspire along with other people. And we're just going to give up and not learn how to do a spreadsheet. One of the easiest things on earth We'll learn how to use one of the most complicated sprayers, a new 2K product that you got to put catalyzer and reducer and crosslinker in. We will spend endless time researching, trying and failing and loving it and then posting it on social media about all this stuff. But we will not take the time to experiment and get out of our comfort zone when we try to professionalize our business. So personal challenge to you guys is let's get uncomfortable. Push yourself. Get over that limiting belief and that head trash. So now here it is. Um, the steps to professionalization, and I have links to every single show up, including last week's. And if you email me at the end of this show, I will send this to you if you don't already have it. This is the master's class, uh, the links to every single one of my deep dive Ask a Painter live shows. If you're interested in self-guiding through professionalization, you do this. If you're not interested in self-guiding and you need some assistance like I did, you go into the PCA. And I have two things for you guys. There's a big QR code on this thing right now. I realize that I am covering up part of it, so I will move myself here. Uh, we don't want to cover that up. Um, I don't charge for any of this stuff, right? I'm not a consultant. I don't have anything to sell you guys, but I do have some asks in return. Number one, for the people, large amount of people watching this right now, share this show right now. Share it to your stories. Share it to your feed, share it to your groups, whatever you can do, just hit share. It doesn't cost you anything. It's insanely valuable to me and all the rest of the followers here. Number two, if you really, if you, if you're feeling this existential angst about, I don't really know what to charge for this. I can't really schedule. I don't know where to find people. If I do, I don't know how to train them. I don't know what the next steps are. I've been trying to make SOPs for six months and they're just not there. I don't know what to do. I have my SOPs, but my business hasn't changed overnight. What's the problem? I made them and, and things aren't happening. 
Here it is, folks. Two asks. Join me in the PCA, the Painting Contractors Association. The answers to all of those existential angst lie within the PCA. There's industry standards. So if you ever wonder what a prop, what constitutes a properly finished wall, there's actually a standard. Normal standing, uh, 39 inches away under normal natural light, things like that. I didn't get the words exactly right, uh, but there's a standard there for a reason because I copy and paste and put that stuff in my contracts. What constitutes a properly painted surface? These are actually free to everybody right now. You can go look. We offer health insurance. Uh, there's painters training, world-class painters training. If you want a training module for your painters, all you have to do is become a member. You can train an infinite amount of painters with our learning management system, our videos, our native Spanish speaking um, uh, sort of tutorials, things like that. Uh, there's business training. This is the next thing I'm going to talk about. We'll get into that. There's in-person events like the expo. You guys saw the expo, how insanely exciting that was. That was phenomenal. There are events like that all over the country safety programs as well too so there's a, a pca safety program you can help your company out with commercial peer groups are you a big commercial contractor there's actually peer groups that get together and share best practices and then there's gathering groups uh, around the country so our goal is to get a gathering group in every state in minnesota i think we have 300 contractors painters uh, that get together regularly in our state and it's it starts with a facebook group and then we start getting together four times a year and they're happening all over there's probably about 20 or 25 states that have them now. And there's even estimating guides. Like right now, there are two paper volumes that you can buy from the PCA that have production rates, prices, things like that, and help you create your own production rates and things like that. Most people don't know these exist. My two volumes are actually sitting on my desk in, in my other war room. So that's that's my ask number one, which is join me in the PCA, folks. I mean, it. you guys have seen all the social media stuff. You see how excited I am. I was a single owner operator full of existential angst, why I couldn't grow and grow um, without friction. And then I met the people in the PCA and we have gone from that one person to about 40 people at the peak of the season in about six or seven years. And I did that with the help of all the people in the PCA. So the organization is near and dear to my heart. It is so near and dear to my heart. I have devoted a lot of my time uh, to this organization and I've been elected the chairman of the board, uh, Jason Paris, who is the past chair just before me. Me and him got together and we created a an asset for this industry called the Business Accelerator and Business Training, where we take the best lessons from his business and mine, and we actually have a learning management system, quizzes, uh, a cohort group of your peers that actually do this together uh, via virtual training, and then subject matter experts like me hop in and uh, and join you guys and and ask answer questions. So, if you want any of this, you go to the PCA's website. Here is the QR code right there next to me, and let's see if I can. I'm going to switch. It. There we go. Big QR code. There's a QR code on there right now. If you follow this or if you search up business training PCA, it's going to bring you right to this. And this is literally the steps to professionalization, the mastering the basic stuff. That's what this group is based on. Only you have a cohort, you have a learning management system, and you have a facilitator for that group. If you can't self-guide or won't self-guide, you can get in there with other people and hold each other accountable and do that too. So it's a great thing here. So <laughs> hey Nick, see you tomorrow afternoon. I'm off to the city council meeting. Hey, good luck. Good luck on Instagram there. All right. So that's a business accelerator. So folks, seriously, this is a pattern that I followed that a lot of my followers follow, which is, hey, this is great. Send me those templates. And then a year later, it's like, ah, you know, I looked into them, but things got busy. I just kind of kept painting. And guess what? My business hasn't really moved forward at all. And I'm still kind of experiencing the same friction. Folks, this is my ask, right? I have nothing to sell you. Join me in the PCA. 
It worked for me. It worked for Jason Paris. It works for thousands of contractors around the United States. I'm going to challenge you. How serious are you? If you plan on doing this, being a master craftsperson and or being a paint business or trade business entrepreneur the rest of your lives, how serious are you? Are you going to keep doing it the way you're doing it right now forever with these same friction points? Imagine yourself with frictions about what do you charge for X? How do you schedule? There's no good people out there. And then imagine yourself, you're 68 years old and you have nothing to sell at the end of this and you have no employees and you have no prospects of handing it down to employees, selling it to employees, fostering the next generation. Does that make you sad or happy? This can be fine. This can be a lifestyle business. You can go on single-handedly doing this stuff, but you can still professionalize. So I will ask you and challenge you now, Put your money where your mouth is. If you're serious about this, this is the smallest investment you will make in your business ever. We will spend $3,800 on a sprayer, and then we won't spend four or $500, even $1,000 on the PCA for all this world-class training that would actually facilitate us to be a professional company to afford these things much better. So again, folks, I have nothing to sell. I hate to be a show for membership for organizations, but I think you guys understand how important this organization is to me. It, is, it has helped me create my little freedom machine for both time and money, and I am eternally grateful to it. And I get so much love out of the humans in the PCA that I just wanna share it. So again, long-winded, long way around of saying, you guys know how deeply appreciative I am. And if you've been to the PCA Expo, you felt that exuberance, that excitement, like things are happening in our industry. And we're innovating. And in 10 years, it's not going to be like this. It's going to be different. There's going to be big professional companies everywhere. It is going to be so good to be here right now with you guys doing this, innovating. We're the ones getting, uh, we're the ones going right over uh, into the West. Uh, it's unsettled now. And we're discovering, we're paving the way for future generations of this. Uh, things that people have said, you know, hey, let's get the next generation of people in the trades. I will argue we should probably professionalize before we start dragging people in here. So um, my email address is up on the screen on Facebook now. And, uh, oh, I see a good friend, Adam Northenskold on here, fellow Minnesota painter. He's got a nice question. I am going to, I'm going to answer that. And then we will probably talk about the UAE, United Arab Emirates, in a little bit here. So, okay, Adam Northenskold. So we're broadcasting on TikTok right here. We're broadcasting on Instagram right there. We're broadcasting on Facebook right there. Uh, <clears throat> Adam, how do you view professionalization for painters who want to keep their businesses small and don't feel that existential angst about growing for any reason, wanting to maintain the flexible lifestyle, wanting to stay on the brush full time, focus on artistic and unique finishes? What steps do you think are still important for reducing stress and delivering consistent results? Ooh, I have something for you. So let's go back. All right. So. What we're looking at now is steps to professionalization. Step number one, proven process or product. So number one, that's easy. Whether you're a single painter, and Adam, this is, I'm gonna go through all the steps and show you exactly what applies to a single owner operator. So remember, at the start of every one of these discussions, I make it very clear that this is not a value judgment. This is not a value judgment. If I was a single owner operator, I would follow every single one of these steps up until step six. Step six, is team development. You wouldn't necessarily need to do that. But then step seven is personal development back there again. Step one, proven product and process. This is an SOP. Every single person operating in this industry should have a standard operating procedure, whether you do it yourself or not. It should also be written down too, even if you're a single owner operator. I like to keep records of that stuff too, especially when you're thinking about these beautiful finishes. You want to keep track of pressure, 
uh, tip size, um, uh, whether you thin your products or not, whether you heat your products or not, crosslinkers, additives, things like that. If you're not keeping the standard operating procedure written down, it's all in your head and it's useless and you're probably going to forget it. Proven estimating process. You want to track all your estimating stuff and you want to have a data-based approach to estimating projects. And, and basically, uh, that goes along with marketing too. Even if you're a single sole proprietor, there will be some point where you need to do a little bit of marketing and it would be great to have a data-based estimating system so that when you do get these jobs, you can estimate them correctly and not get in over your head. Number three, deliverables and standards. So job description, pay scale, goal setting and review process, work orders, employee handbook, accountability. Four of those seven things, four of those six things you wouldn't necessarily need, but I would absolutely say, you know, job description, even if you don't pay yourself uh, uh, a W-2 wage as a single owner operator, you should be accounting for your own labor in there. So you won't necessarily need an employee handbook, but certainly work orders, things like that are a very important thing and accountability. Accountability is a big thing, even if it's only your uh, own, own self in there. Job costing, number four huge. Uh, so step one, absolutely proven product. Step two, estimating process. Absolutely. Step three, half applicable, two thirds applicable, give or take. Number four, job costing, 100% applicable. If if you, if you people do nothing else, I would job cost all your projects because that will completely, that will completely get rid of that. I'm the best. I'm the most expensive. I'm booked out two years. You will overlay some data and find out if you actually are the best, if you actually are the most expensive, which mostly we're not. And this comes from somebody who said that before. Um, number five, goal tracking. Absolutely. You should be taking your job costing and then putting it out in the week, the month, the quarter, something else to track your progress on a whole instead of just the job. Team development, I would say you probably don't need to do that if you're going to stay a sole proprietor. But then personal development, number seven, that's a big one, too, where, again, scheduling your time, being intentional. And it might be even more important as a single uh, owner operator because you have to do the estimates, you have to do the marketing, you actually have to do the work as well too. You have to do project management, you have to do scheduling, you have to do finances most of the time, sometimes even bookkeeping, uh, all the client correspondence, uh, the coordination, the admin work, things like that. So block scheduling your time is very important, especially when you're uh, a sole proprietor. So I would say, Adam, that is a great question. And you, you know me well enough. We know each other long enough. You know that this is a value judgment where when I say existential angst, I'm not saying that uh, everybody should have this angst of getting a whole bunch of employees and a shop and a leadership team and all this other stuff. But I felt this existential angst when I was a single owner operator saying, what is possible out there? Like, what are the finest finishes? What is the most I can do? How can I give the clients the best experience? That doesn't change whether you have a ton of employees or not. Uh, people who think like us, Adam, constantly want to push the boundaries on this. And professionalization actually allows us to do that because we don't want to be a statistic. We don't want to be that 1.5 painting company making $43,000 a year that goes out of business every one to three years. And if you have nothing written down, if you've never job costed, statistically, you will likely be one of those statistics that goes out of business and doesn't make any money. It would be heartbreaking for me to not have the freedom to do this craft that I love. Going out of business is the ultimate unfreedom of not being able to do this craft. So for me, being a professional allows me, even after all these years right now, um, <clears throat> I used to have to do the craft in order to make the money and other stuff. And I love it. It's great. But I always felt like there was something more. Like I'm such a utilitarian. And for me, I want to affect a big change. And 
I want to, I want to inspire other people. Like I've been inspired. Like I love this craft so much. It would be heartbreaking for me to keep it to myself. The way that I could facilitate this and financially make it good enough uh, to keep it going at my little freedom machine is to have a big business where we can recruit people, put them in an apprenticeship program, the decent human being principle, inspire them. And, and then, paint through other people. And now, Adam, I actually found myself in a really cool place now where I can practice the craft as I see fit when I want to. Uh, and things that I'm very, very interested in, you know, um, but the harder part of this, the painting is easy, the leadership, the inspiration, uh, the project management, the estimating, everything else is way harder than the actual painting, uh, at least for me. Uh, painting is the easiest thing. It's having the like I got this, I got a, uh, a plaque right above my desk that says, just be consistent, not extreme. And that is so hard for me because it was much easier when I was just a master craftsperson to just bang out a 14 hour day, scrape till my hands were bleeding, accomplish a huge major thing, restoring an old Victorian, stand back, immediate gratification, good. All I had to do was hold myself accountable, which is way easier than holding others. And that's fine. But there's a higher order to this too, where my existential angst came in where I want to push the limits of finishes, but I also want to push the limits of facilitating painting and inspiration through other people. And I felt that even when I pushed the limits of the craft and did some pretty fun things on a big scale, it's still that angst didn't really go away from me. And that's why I found this stuff in the PCA and it was insanely helpful to me. So, all right, everybody, uh, let's see, let me do, we're going to hide this one. I'm going to hide this one and let's share. I'm going to share one more and I'm going to share some pictures from my United Arab Emirates trip for you guys. <clears throat> I absolutely love, I absolutely love experiencing other cultures. So what's really interesting for me is that I was in the Middle East. The United Arab Emirates is a collection of Emirates, uh, like little countries or states. Um, and the country is only about 50 years old, give or take. I'm probably going to get a few of these facts wrong. But um, a sheikh about 50 years ago said, hey, we should get these states or these warring factions together. And they did. And they created the United Arab Emirates. Tons of oil, very prosperous. They got the Burj Khalifa, the tallest building on earth, all that other kind of fun stuff. Actually, here it is right here. My first night when I flew in uh, to the United Arab Emirates, my friend Ronnie from Brazil, who's actually there coaching a world skills team, but more on that in a little bit. Uh, <laughs> it was like three in the morning and he's like, hey, let's just go to the Burj Khalifa. And so we went down to the base of it and it is a magnificent uh, sort of a feat of human engineering. It's a wonderful thing. So that was a lot of, a lot of fun. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Uh, so my purpose of going there was to... Um, Let's see here. The purpose of me going there was to um, work with, actually, you know what, here, let's get it on a bigger screen. That work? There we go, a little bit better. The purpose of me going, this is Ronnie right here. This is my friend, Ronnie from Brazil. Um, he is a industrial trainer and he uh, got um, recruited by the United Arab Emirates government to go teach a world skills team. A world skills team, uh, world skills is a competition where uh, countries in the world, they have skilled trades. And I think there's like 26 different areas. I mean, it can be plumbing, aircraft mechanics, vehicle painting, uh, even like logistics, uh, transportation and stuff like that. But you compete on a very tightly sanctioned, measured, rated, graded system against all the other countries in the world. The weird thing is uh, on, on my beloved painter Facebook groups, people always say, hey, we should have a uh, 
We should have a Olympics of painting, right? And painting competitions. Turns out the rest of the world does this. We just don't compete in it. Now, the competitions are a little different. It's not necessarily architectural stuff. Uh, it, it sidelines a little bit with that. But this is Ronnie here. And we have experts. This is an expert from Ireland. He's a coach. This is an expert from Nigeria. He's a coach. This is an expert from the United Arab Emirates. Let's see, who else do we have? Here's an expert from South Africa. Here's an expert from Egypt. And then we have a couple uh, other experts here that were locals that have competed before. We have three young ladies. I think they're all under uh, between about 18 to 22, give or take. But they're either master competitors or they've competed before. Uh, this particular young lady right here, uh, Khadijah, um, she is actually uh, getting ready for the world skills competition because you start out at the local level, the school level, then you compete on a little larger level, then you go to the country level. And the, and the competition that I came and helped out at was the country of the United Arab Emirates. So we actually crowned the gold medal winner for the entire country of the United Arab Emirates. There's about 10 million people um, uh, in the country, give or take. That person is going to be competing at the world skills along with somebody else. So uh, we have a couple competitors there. You can see we have some shakes here, uh, some very important politicians, um, ambassadors, things like that, that were there as well, too. And of course, we got the chance to hand them one of my hats, give or take. But it's a very good group of people. The government actually funds this. And it's a very important. Uh, it's a very important thing. There's lots of national pride there, which is really cool. So I'll see if I can show you guys a picture of let's see what we were actually doing. Competition is very interesting. And uh, I just thought it'd be one of those like, well, painting subjective. How can you possibly do this? Until they handed me a ruler and I was measuring down to the millimeter, uh, down to the millimeter, uh, some of these things like this. So it was really, really interesting. Let's see if we can pull up any video here. Laying out and get some pictures here. All right. So one of the things that they did was actually pretty cool. Uh, that actually translates to architectural painting pretty well. Uh, they did a speed test. And what they do is they have some very tightly. Nah, that's not the speed test. This is the speed test. Um, they lay out this very tightly like measured sort of thing down to the millimeter and there's four different colors of paint and they have to lay it out on something about the size of a door. They have to mask it off, not get any bleed through, lay it out correctly. It's measured to within the millimeter and they're also graded on how even the finishes are, um, whether it's opaque enough, uh, stipple, flaws in the finish, you know, like nibs and bumps and uh, divots and things like that. It's a very, very interesting thing to watch. And uh, let's see, here was a, let's see if I can find a picture. The videos are taking a little long to load. Another one of the skills was called free technique, where they could do something very artistic. And this is the thing that's probably least applicable to a lot of us house painters and architectural painters. But what you can see here uh, in the... Yep, they're laying out a couple of different measured things. This here is a free technique. So this is basically very artistic. They can do whatever they want within the span of this sort of uh, square right here. And I saw some young people doing insanely artistic things. Now you can see the other person's speed test. This one was in a green right here where they laid it all out, uh, which is pretty cool. There is 
the laying out a very, very tightly um, measured uh, thing that every competitor has to do. They're all judged based on the same thing. One of them is like lettering and stuff too. So they'll actually take a vinyl graphic, lay it over, uh, make sure that there's no bleed, paint color over color. And, and this is not a vinyl decal here. They use a vinyl decal for a template. Um, and then they, uh, yeah, they paint over it like that. But again, what I saw the big, and people can say, well, Hey, listen, we, that artistic thing may not be applicable to us and that's fine. Uh, I completely get that. But what I will say is the thing that took me, um, that I was most impressed with was, um, oh, come on, get out of here. There we go. Yeah. The thing that I that that I was really impressed with um, was the fact that they have an ethos, and I I wanted to look at the system, the macro, when I was there. And what I learned was the country thought it was important. They got world class trainers. They got the government involved. They have a crazy system of recruiting, onboarding, training, mentoring, developing, leading, inspiring. And then they have competitions to actually have these people's um, efforts be rewarded and, um, uh, and recognized and things like that. And uh, we think we're good painters, right? Um, what I witnessed was a group of 16-year-old girls in the Middle East who were self-directed over three days. There were eight to 9,000 people, their own, stu- their own classmates from their high schools and stuff, were actually coming in and watching them in live real time in this crazy expo center Eight to 9,000 people came and saw them. They did not crack under pressure. They were self-directed. And over the course of three days, they did some very complicated painting projects, right? And that was so inspiring to me. I mean, to we always say, oh, the, the young people aren't getting into the craft or this and that. This shows you what the possibility of, of a professional organization being intentional and actually taking the next steps, an R&D budget to recruit and train and retain bright young talent into the trades like this. And these tech schools, they actually have technical uh, high schools there. The technical high schools are the place to be. They have a lot of the great English language and stuff like that. They're, they're recruiting directly from there into businesses. The curriculum is insanely uh, uh, technique-driven, uh, critical from the instructors, and uh, all data-based. And it's a wonderful thing. So I, I, I honestly cannot tell you guys enough about how impressed I am about the young people that I witnessed there. It's truly remarkable. And somebody who has devoted their life uh, to intertwining their own life with young people and inspiring and training them, uh, it was an absolutely wonderful thing. And I just can't say enough about it. So I would not be surprised. I've already drafted a memo to the PCA and some other organizations. And uh, I would not be surprised if there wasn't some sort of um, <clears throat> competition. It may not be pure world, world skills, but I would not be surprised. Uh, you should not be surprised if there isn't something like this in the next couple of years here, especially as the chairman of the board of the PCA. If there's anything I can get going, um, I will use whatever influence I have, whatever goodwill I have uh, to, yeah, to basically get something like this going. Uh, it's hugely inspiring. And I think uh, from there, let's make sure I didn't breeze by any other comments here. Okay. I think we are good folks. Thank you all for watching. Thanks for, um, um, sort of being flexible and having a Monday night edition with me. I got back from the United Arab Emirates, about 24 hours of travel being completely depleted, going from planes, all this other stuff. You guys followed the adventure. Um, I actually, people were asking about jet lag. I got back Friday, 
took about 24 hours to get there, two plane rides. First one, eight or nine hours. Second one, six to seven hours, give or take, depending on headwinds. Um, layovers in Paris and uh, Amsterdam. But the one thing is people are asking me, hey, how's the jet lag? So here's the deal. Um, crazy jet lag. We're about a nine or 10 hour difference from there. Uh, on day one, I tried to will myself into getting on UAE time and it did not happen, right? It wasn't as easy as I as I thought I could do it, right? So what I did was I made a concerted effort to basically be like, all right, Nick, here's the deal. You are going to fight this and get on UAE time over the course of three to four days. And then you get on that time and then you go right back to the US. Uh, I thought that was not a wise idea. So what I did, I just said, screw it. I sucked it up as Holly Barlow was saying. And I basically just stuck on United States time. So I was almost completely opposite. My go time was in probably about 11 at night till about five in the morning. That was my prime daytime there in the UAE. And basically from nine in the morning to about four at night, I was a dead human walking around zombie-like. But again, it's like, we're not scraping a Victorian house. We're not scraping a barn. All I had to do was show up and foster and mentor and coach these young people and just take in another culture. And you know what? Who cares? Do it, right? Just suck it up. Moving on. We're business owners, we're problem solvers. And so basically, I, I had a lot of time sitting in a completely dark hotel room, looking out over the city on the lights, uh, getting emails done, things like that in the middle of the night, having breakfast. Basically, that was my midnight and then going on to an, a day full of events. My sleep in the UAE consisted of two and a half hour segments of sleep randomly throughout the day. I would find a slow spot and be like, hey, we're having a long lunch today. Okay, I'm going to go back to the hotel room. I lay down for an hour and a half, do some emails, lay back down for another 45 minutes because I got tired again, and then get up, put on my suit jacket again, walk back down to the expo center and get after it. So I can't thank you guys enough for following along uh, with all of my adventures like this. Um, I'm afforded some great freedoms and opportunities in this world, especially after coming to the Middle East. I do not take it for granted, and I will not take you guys for granted either. So I'm going back home to have a little family time before my kids go to bed, and then we are getting after it uh, this week. Back in business, back here with all my people, our awesome leadership team meetings, and uh, boy, it is good to see you guys again interact with this, and you guys have a good, prosperous rest of the week. All right, folks, see you in a couple days. Paynet podcasts are produced by the Painting Contractors Association and are made possible by members and industry partners. To find out more about upcoming education opportunities or for more information about joining PCA, visit PCAPainted.org.